And as you're being seated, I want to just thank our brother Nathan Johnson for leading us this morning in our confession of sin. Many of you in this room probably know Nathan and his wife, Hannah. Nathan is a professor at New College Franklin and um, recently was hired part-time here at the church as a teacher in residence and is serving us in a variety of capacities. I think it's the first time he's been in a second service, maybe. Um, So thank you, brother, for being here. Um, If you were in Sunday school, you... You got to sit under Nathan's teaching this morning in the Doctrines of Grace class, which um, he taught on very simple subjects. If you were in that course, he taught on the election of God and limited atonement, the extent of the atonement. I assigned that to him because I love him. (laughs) I love him very much. And sometimes baptism by fire is the best way to go into these things. So thank you, brother. Really grateful for you. We're in Ephesians chapter 3, which means that we're halfway or nearly halfway through this wonderful letter of the Apostle Paul. There are six chapters in the letter of Ephesians, and so we're right in the middle. But I I dare say we're halfway through the richness of this letter. So much for us still to uncover Um, Even as Nathan alluded to, that particular phrase that we're going to come across in our reading this morning, the unsearchable riches of Christ Jesus. That word unsearchable literally means without a footprint, Uh, meaning, so to speak, that you can't trace this back all of the way. Its depth is so significant that you'll never get to the bottom of it. Which I think in, in some sense is actually the theme really of where the Lord's going to take us uh, today in this message in Ephesians chapter 3. And that is around that word that I introduced at the beginning of the service uh, this morning, the word mystery. If it's the unsearchable riches of, of Christ that is the greatest gift that the Lord has given to us and there is no footprint that would so lead us back to its origin so that we could fully understand its nature and depth means to say that we're in the midst of a mystery. We're in the midst of something larger than the capacities of what operates between our two ears, that is our mind and our brain. We're not going to be able to get, so to speak, to the nth degree of the riches of Christ Jesus, you are in the midst of a deep mystery. And that's a wonderful thing. Um, For some of us in this room, talking about mystery excites us and and encourages us. For others of us, uh, we we immediately get a little suspicious or a little skeptical. Um, Mystery is maybe one of those categories that causes us trouble. We stub our toes, so to speak, on all of the time because we want to know things. And mystery in and of itself means that this is beyond the capacity of our knowledge. We're never going to get to the the end of it. And yet, to enter into biblical mystery, as Ephesians chapter 3 teaches us, is that there's something that we know that is true and real and deep and profound. And yet, in all of what we know that's real and deep and profound, it's still partial it, it's, it's still limited. The, the degree by which we know it is finite. 
we can't know everything about the riches of the gospel of God's grace because, well, it's lodged away in God himself, and God is infinite. And that means that we will forevermore search it out and never, so to speak, get to the end of it. And that should remind us of what C.H. Spurgeon said years ago, that when we come to a place in the Scriptures where we find ourselves at a loss, uh, deep in the mysteries of God, something that we can't understand fully, like election or, or limited atonement or, or those doctrines that stretch our minds to such a degree where we're not sure exactly fully what to do with them, Spurgeon said, consider it an altar at which to bow and worship. Consider it an altar at which to bow and worship. It is as we sometimes say here, remembering the principles of theology and the most fundamental principles of theology we must begin with. One is that there is a God. Number two, you are not Him. You are not Him. And there will always be in the study of the infinite a place at which we will find ourselves needing to bow and simply worship. I think this is a text that's something of that nature in Ephesians chapter 3. And so let's actually turn our attention there, Ephesians 3, and consider the Apostle Paul's words. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of this stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery, there's that word, was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches Christ, and to bring delight for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, we ask you now for this word by your spirit to speak into our hearts as we consider it and as we feed on it. 
May it be to us in this hour the bread of life. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You, you know at times I have taken one verse in this series and simply drilled down deeply into one verse. We did that just a few weeks ago. If you've been with us in Ephesians 2.10 and we spent an entire sermon on one verse. I just want to make note we have 13 verses before us today. What that means is that there's no way to say everything that needs to be said in these 13 verses. So I'm going to I'm going to zero in on a very, some very few, but, but I think central things here in these 13 verses. And, and here's, here's the good news. I get to come back next week. And uh, we get to talk about these things again as we'll continue in this series in Ephesians 3. So I'm not going to, I'm going to say everything. It may feel like I'm saying everything, but I'm not, not saying everything. <clears throat> I've been in a group this large. There's a few of you. In here, who, who love <clears throat> mysteries? You love mystery stories. Maybe you have even begun to wistfully think about that that beach reservation that has your name on it this summer, where you're going to just sit and you're going to fry underneath the sun, and there with your sunglasses on, you're going to be reading. And for some of you, it's going to be a mystery. One of those page-turner, suspenseful mysteries that keeps you, so to speak, on the the edge of your seat, keeps you turning the the pages. You you know the kind of books. I I remember as a a child, I fell in love with with mysteries. You remember the Hardy Boys, right? I read and read and read some more. The the Hardy Boys, I I think I got maybe to the end of them because I couldn't find any that I had not read. And don't tell anyone, I started reading Nancy Drew. (laughs) Started reading Nancy Drew for a while. I I loved mysteries. I I really still today love love mysteries. I I don't get the chance to read them very often. But to get a good mystery is one of of the great delights of, of life. Now, what's interesting about a mystery, and especially a mystery novel or a mystery story, is, well, by definition, you think they're all um, different and surprising because, well, they're, they're, they're mysteries. But if, if you've read a lot of mysteries, you know that they're, well, I hate to be a spoiler for you, they're all the same. They're all essentially the same. There's something very early on in the book or even in the, the movie that happens that's unexplainable in some way. And... And it could be something like a supernatural happening that, that the scientists in the, the mystery can't figure out by, by, by using the senses. And, and you're launched into the story seeking to find an explanation. It could be a crime uh, mystery. There's, the, there's, you know, there's, there's Miss Scarlet with the wrench in the parlor. And, and we don't know how all of it happened. We don't know whether to blame her or she was set up or staged. And, and, and we're going to find through the story what actually happened. There's this unexplainable event. The narrative of the story then really centers around an investigative process. Right? Hints that, that unfold through the pages. Clues that are 
are collected uh, witnesses that, um, that emerge in the, the story. And then always, I mean, it's always, right, two-thirds to three-quarters of the way through the book, there's this key piece of revelation that emerges in the story that, that is a twist. What, you know, the literary plotline folks tell us is a turning point in the story. And at that point in the story, it hastens on towards the end and everything is, it makes sense. The mystery is solved. And normally at the turning point in the story, you know, it was Miss Scarlet with the wrench in the parlor and, and you learn that that is what the situation is. And then you go, I didn't see that. Oh, but back in chapter 2, that was suspicious that she was, you know, talking to the janitor and they had that discussion, you know. And then you, chapter 3, oh, that's right, there was there in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, oh, right, when she was out in the garden with the gardener, you know. And you're putting all of the pieces together and now as you've gotten to the end of the story, you read it, so to speak, backwards and there's all these hints and there's all these collections of clues that were there the whole time, but you didn't see them. They didn't register to you as key to the solution of the mystery. Paul says that the gospel is a mystery. Over and over in Ephesians chapter 3, he tells us that the gospel is a mystery. In verse 3 and verse 4, he uses similar terminology in verses 5 and 6. He uses it again in verses 8 and 9. He's telling us throughout that the, in some very real sense, this gospel, this very central message, this news, the story of Christ and Him crucified is a mystery. And it's set, so to speak, within a, within a story that is, that is a mystery, the story of, of the Bible. That in some sense, the story of the Bible and a mystery novel are not nearly as far apart as you would imagine. That in some sense, in a mystery novel, one of the questions that you're asking is, well, who done it? And in the story of the Bible, one of the questions that you're asking throughout is, who's going to do it? Who's done it? How is, how is this event going to be unwound? How is this occurrence going to, going to be redeemed? How is what has happened at the beginning of time going to be solved? The gospel is a, well, it's a mystery. But it's not just a mystery in the way that we sometimes think of the term. Like if you say something is a mystery, it means you don't have the information you need to make heads or tails of it. This is a mystery to me. Some of you are like, that's my life. You know, my life is, to me, a mystery. I don't know what to make of it uh, as I look of it, right? And you, you're mean to say when you talk about it in that way, I don't have the information I need to make sense of the thing. So it's a, it's a mystery to me. It's beyond my comprehension, my understanding. Well, when the Bible uses the word mystery, it, it, it doesn't mean it in quite that way. It's speaking about something that was there, but was hidden. 
was not fully disclosed. It lurked, so to speak, in the shadows. It's like the clue of Miss Scarlet in chapter 3. It's there, and if you knew, so to speak, the unfolding of the story, you probably would have seen it along the way. You would have picked up the clues. You would have followed the footprints. They would have led you somewhere to the solution of the, the mystery. But because you didn't see it, it took getting to the turning point in the story. To the point where a key revelation emerges. And when that key revelation emerges, all of the things that came before begin to make sense. Paul is actually saying the gospel is a lot like that. It's a lot like this key revelation, this central narrative, the center of the story that makes sense of all of what's happened in the story of, of the Bible. And notice the language he uses throughout this section. Verse 3. The mystery, this thing that wasn't fully known, notice, was made known to me by revelation. It's come out of hiding. And so to speak, it's come into the light. The, the reality of the thing has emerged. We saw it in silhouette form, but we didn't know the substance of the thing until Christ came on the center stage. Verses 4 and 5, you can perceive my insight into, notice, the mystery of Christ. Oh, he's getting a bit more specific. He's talking about Jesus specifically. He's the mystery of Christ. But notice what it says. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. It was hidden. It was, it was in shadows. It was not disclosed. But now has been revealed. There's that word again to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Notice again verses 8 and 9. The grace that was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light, there it is, reveal, bring to light for everyone what is the plans of the mystery hidden for ages in God. So Paul is saying this motif, this theme, throughout the whole of this section that the gospel is a mystery that we saw well, we saw it in the shadows of the temple. We saw it in the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And we saw it in the covenant promises of God. We saw, we saw the, the sense of the gospel there, but it was so in the, in the symbols, in the signs, in the darkness, so to speak, that we needed Christ to come so that we would see the fullness of this emerge. But there's a specific sense that I want to drill down into as to what is the mystery that Paul here is speaking of. There's a general sense in which the gospel is mystery, but there's a particular sense that Paul's aiming at here, and you see it right there in verse 6. He tells you what the mystery is. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the particular mystery that he's addressing. The mysteries of Christ and Him crucified certainly pictured throughout the world. That's a grand mystery. In the general sense, that's true. But the particular, the particular mystery related to that that he wants us to see is the fact that middle Tennesseans are welcomed into this promise. That the salvation that had been given to the Jews long before that God's covenant people, his prized possession, as, it, as we saw throughout the Old Testament, that what was given to them always had in view every kindred, tribe, and tongue, and nation. That it wasn't always only, so to speak, 
for the Jews, that it was intended for, yes, even Middle Tennessee folks, even for you, the uttermost parts of the world, because that's what we are. He said that was a mystery, that we were all going to be one. We, in the previous chapter, were strangers and aliens to the covenant promises. We were not a part of the commonwealth of Israel. We were without hope and without God in the world. That's who we were. That's who Middle Tennesseans were. That's who the Ephesians were, these Gentiles that Paul is writing to. Salvation doesn't come from the Gentiles. It comes from the Jews. It comes in and through the covenant promises, in and through the promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, carried through through the pages of Scripture for Moses and, and David, all the way into the New Covenant. As you're turning the pages of the mystery of the Bible, you're seeing this thread, and all of the thread is tracing a lineage of Jewish line. Salvation comes from the, the Jews. Well, Jesus made that very point, didn't he, in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. Even as she was asking him questions about worship, do we worship on this mountain or on that mountain? My people say this mountain, that. And, and he says, you know, the Jews are, the Jews are right. The Jews, the Jews are right. Salvation comes through them. He's clear about that, but, but it's not exclusively for them. The Gentiles will be fellow heirs and inheritors of those promises. We'll be a part of the same body, notice, partakers of the promises that are in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He wants you to see. He wants you today. He wants me today to be astonished at that truth. That you, his people, have been given ears to hear the promises given long ago to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are promises that have been realized in your life and heart if you're a believer in Christ today. That you've been made one body you who were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants you to be astonished at that. Do you know, this is one of the troubles with, with what can happen in generational Christianity. And even over the maturing of a Christian's life is that the gospel and the reality of its gift even as Nathan was talking about the unsearchable riches of Christ, the reality of its giftedness and the preciousness of it becomes very ordinary and familiar to us. And the sense of astonishment, the, the sense of being flabbergasted, that, that you have been brought near, you've been brought in, that Christ is yours, that he has set his love upon you, O Gentile, from before the foundation of the world, that you, as we will sing later in this service, were able to enter while there was still room. That's an amazing promise. And he wants us today to be freshly amazed at this mystery that's been revealed in Christ for you as people. But now some of you are asking yourself, was this really hidden? I mean, was this really hidden, this, this inclusion of the Gentiles, this inclusion of Middle Tennessee folks from, from you know, through hundreds and, and even thousands of years now removed, that you would be a part of the gospel? Was that really not something that was seen in the Old Testament? I mean, you could read Paul's language that way. Look at verse 5. 
my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, but has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. You, you see what he's saying there? It was not made known. They didn't know about this mystery in previous generations. You could draw the sense. There was no sense of Gentile inclusion. That was not foreknown. That was not seen. Some actually interpret verse 5 in just that way. In fact, there's whole interpretive understandings of the Bible that interpret the Scriptures in that way. That, that really the church age, the age that, that we're in right now, the inclusion of Gentiles into the, the saving promises of God was, is by some language a, a parenthesis in redemptive history. Meaning that the Old Testament really didn't foresee the age that we're at. We'll one day get back to the promises of the Old Testament. All those are to Jews only. Gentiles have no, Gentiles have no, no, no play in those promises. Um, and so we'll get back to the Jews later in the future. But right now, this was unforeseen. This time period was unforeseen in the Old Testament. There's lots of people, believe it or not, who believe just that. Now, I take issue with that reading. Of verse 5, and I think we need to be careful. I think we need to be careful. Paul is certainly saying this in verse 5, that the particulars regarding how the Gentiles would be included and the means and the mechanism through which that would happen, namely Christ in the cross, was not seen with clarity was not seen with great definition. It wasn't something that was, was in high relief in the minds and the hearts of, of Israelites in the Old Testament. It, it was known, but it was known darkly. It was known in shadows and in pictures. But much of it was remained in their own mind. Unknown, it remained mysterious. It was a mystery to them. But Paul doesn't mean in verse 5 that there's no hint of the plan of God's redemption going to the Gentiles throughout the Old Testament. He clearly doesn't mean that because when you begin to turn to the Old Testament, you begin to see, oh, there, there are clues everywhere. You remember how the mystery novel goes, right? You get to the turning point in the Revelation and you realize, right, Poor Miss Scarlet. It really is her in the parlor with the wrench. And when you find out that that's the case, you can look back and you can see what? All the clues. All the hints. And part of what Paul is saying is that when we get to the point of Christ and the cross, when we begin to see the promises of the Old Testament come to fruition in the New Testament, everybody looks around and goes, I did not see that coming. I didn't see it like this. I didn't have any idea that it was going to be under this direction, this way, happen uh, like this. This is mysterious. And in the mystery of Christ and the cross, you can then look back on the Old Testament and go, oh, I see it everywhere. I see it going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Do you remember the covenant promises given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? Just in the opening pages of the scripture, listen to this. See if you can hear inclusion of the Gentiles in this covenant promise. Genesis 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, Abraham. 
And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you, do you hear salvation to the Gentiles there? It's there. In Genesis 12, verse 3, full inclusion. Notice he says, in you, Abraham. Now Abraham and people around Abraham thought that that would be a certain thing. It thought it would work out a certain way. Do you, do you remember that? You remember Abraham and Sarah? You remember how they had ideas about how this was going to be fulfilled? Do you remember that? And what did God do? Mysteriously surprised them. He's about that kind of thing. He does that kind of thing all the time. And what, he, what Abraham found out is what, what Paul found out in a very real sense in the New Testament. And that is that this God is a mystery. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. All of these things he's promised, he's not going against his word. But oh, if I had studied it for centuries, I still would have been surprised when it came. I love having conversations with members about the end times. And we do that a lot, don't we, friends? We talk about Jesus' return. There are a lot of different opinions about Jesus' return. Are you aware of this? There's a lot of debate out there about Jesus' return. Are you, you know, pre-tribulational? Or are you post-tribulational? And some of you are just like, I just feel like I'm tribulational. Like there's just <laughs> this whole thing, this whole experience feels tribulational to me. Uh, Right? And we have thoughts and we have ideas. And I, I did have a wonderful professor in, in seminary who, who was, you know, knew these things very well. But he would always say, one thing's for sure, you know, whatever position, even if it's the right one, even if it's the one that I believe, which is the right one. And so if you believe that one, even, even there, you know what I can almost assure you is that you will be surprised. I can almost assure you that you will be surprised. Because if you've read your Bible at all, almost no one knows what's coming ahead of time. Which is why faith is so important, isn't it? Faith is so important that you've got to trust the God who knows and has scripted that future that will surprise you. We'd rather, we'd rather be in control of that future. And, and knowledge is a way of staying in control of it for some of us. If I could just know it all ahead of time, and then I won't be surprised by what happens. Good luck. This mystery, this glorious mystery of the gospel, God's going to say it to you. He's going to speak it to you. He's going to be clear about it. And when it happens, you're going to go, I didn't see it. You notice that right over and over with the disciples. You know, like when Jesus like died on the cross and then was raised again and the angels go, you know, he only told you this like a dozen times. Like, why are you looking for the living among the dead? I mean, he said he was going to raise. And you're like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of remember that, but I didn't think it was going to be like this. Right. Just know that they walked with Jesus for three plus years and had really close communion and completely missed it. The chance for you and I to be surprised is very high. It's very high. Be encouraged. He is trustworthy. His surprise is not to undo you or destroy you. 
the surprises that he brings is what leads us to worship. That's what's wonderful about mystery, isn't it? Right? When you get to that turning point in the movie, when you get to that turning point in the book, and it all becomes plain to you, and something in you goes, aha, eureka, I see it. You see, that's why actually we come to worship in large part. Right? Because week after week, you've got to see these things. You forget these things. You become dull to these things. You need it applied in different ways in your life and your heart. We as a community need to be encouraged. And that's the mystery. That's the beauty and the mystery of what it is that the Lord is doing in the gospel. And Paul here, he wants you to know that he's experiencing that along with you. He's experiencing that along with you. I want you to see that Paul in this text, he speaks very personally, doesn't he? Notice how this whole section begins. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's in some sense leaving this, this, this I've been talking about you, the church. That was the section before. I'm going to tell you a little bit about, about me for a second. Like he's about to jump in to that. And he does that in these 13 uh, verses. And part of what he wants you to see is that he's living out the astonishment that he's actually a preacher of this gospel. Think of the mystery of this narrative, the mystery of this storyline. Who among you, if you had known Saul of Tarsus, who among you would have said, there's going to be the greatest evangelist to the Gentiles? Oh, mystery of mysteries. What a turning point. This Pharisee of Pharisees, this, as we read earlier in the worship service from 1 Timothy 1, this insolent enemy of the gospel, this hater of Christ, this one who stood there at Stephen's martyrdom and gloated with satisfaction over the death of one of the Christ followers, would on the road to Damascus a few chapters later be met with the risen Christ and completely undone, radically converted, credentialed and commissioned to pastoral and apostolic ministry. Mystery of mysteries. Paul is overwhelmingly astonished in the way that the whole of the Bible is in a very real sense this mystery that's being revealed. In the way that the gospel is this mystery that's being revealed. Paul is saying, that mystery's gotten into me. It's changed my whole life. It's turned things completely upside down. Notice the way that he describes himself as the least of all the saints in verse 8. It's actually a very strange grammatical construction. The, the English, they're doing the best they can to, to try to make sense of what the Paul is saying. He's actually using comparative language with a superlative. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that he's saying... Let me just give it to you straight, and then we'll make sense of it, okay? I am the leaster of the least. And you're like, that's not a word. I know. But that's what he's saying. He's comparing himself to the least, and he's saying, there's the least, and I'm underneath the least. That's who I am. Though that's who I am, foremost of sinners, he said in 1 Timothy 
Here the least of all the saints, though I was an insolent enemy of the gospel, he has turned me into a preacher of the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what he's saying. Mystery of mysteries. And Paul knew that kind of reality was taking place in him. He's been taken over by Christ. Notice how he described himself. He's a steward, verse 3. A steward of this mystery. He's a minister, verse 7. Now, let me just remind you, a minister, right? Because you can easily think they're these kind of white-collar professionals, right? The word minister just means servant. So whenever you, whenever you find a minister who thinks he's a little... What would my mom say? She'd say, a little big for his britches. Do you understand what that means? Right. Whenever you think of one who thinks he's a little cut above the other, he doesn't know who he is. He's a minister. That's what Paul is saying here. He's a steward. Does a steward own anything? Does a steward call the shots? No, a steward has received something. He's under the authority of a master. What's a minister? He's a servant. He's under the authority of a master. How does a servant live? A servant lives with the entirety of their life oriented to the master. Their words are oriented towards the master. Their actions are oriented to the master. Their time is not their own. Their energy is not their own. Nothing that they have is their own. They're a servant. They've been bought with a price. That's the Apostle Paul. Now everything that he has has been oriented unto unto Christ. He's a steward. He's He's a minister. How did this happen? Well, he looked... And he said to himself, I have the skill, I have the ability, I'm a very disciplined man, I think I can make a good living for myself in preaching the gospel. And that's not what he did. He says, I'm a steward by God's grace. I'm a minister by God's grace. Meaning to say, I am what I am by God's grace. And the work that I do is giving out the grace that I've received. It's all I am. It's all I am. I am only that which the grace of God has made me to be. All of my life is oriented to Christ. I'm his servant. I'm his steward. And now you can hear, can't you, the astonishment of the Apostle Paul in that. You can hear how he's amazed at who he is. Now, let me just ask you in in closing, let me ask you, how does a steward live? How does a servant, servant live? Well, you said it. He lives according to the wishes and the will of his master. That's right. How does Paul show us that here? Well, there's a number of ways that he shows us. But I want you to see just a couple. Right at the opening of this passage, and if you'll notice, it's odd, as a number of Paul's sentences are, are odd and hard to follow, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, he seems to start in on a thread, and then he, then he kind of veers off of the thread for 12 verses, and then comes back to the thread. He digresses. He, he does what I would never do in a sermon or anything like that, or chase any kind of rabbit and, and never do anything like that. But he does something like that here in, in the writing from the human standpoint, right? Don't hear me say that, like, Holy Spirit's not at work or leading him or anything like that. Of course, all of that is happening. But it's a Holy Spirit wrought digression that's happening in the text. Notice how we can really know that. Look at verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then notice, you see that M dash? Probably an M dash there in your translation. There's not M dashes in the Greek, by the way. He now goes off on a train. 
He's now, he's now just said, on the behalf of you Gentiles, now I hope you've heard about me and what happened to me and how I became an apostle to the Gentiles. And he goes on for 12 verses, you know, saying to the church at Ephesus, I know there's some new people among you since the last time I was there. And, and some of you know me well and others of you don't know me. So let me just tell you how I'm the one writing to you for a second in my relationship. And then notice in verse 14. Now you won't see that unless your Bibles are actually open. But in verse 14, it starts the same way verse 1 of Ephesians 3 starts. For this reason. And this is Paul going, I'm going back and I'm picking it back up. All right, you know, end of rabbit trail, now I'm going to pray for you. Okay, and we'll look at that actually next week together. Now, why does Paul get off on this tangent? Why does he do this Holy Spirit digression in the text? Because he wants to show them in many ways that the grace that has been given to him is the grace that's been given to them. And the grace that the Lord is pouring through him is actually for their glorification. It's for their blessing. And before he prays for them, he wants them to have a sense of the astonishing work of God's grace through his suffering on their behalf. It's really what the whole section's about. How do we see that? Well, notice here what he says. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now we said earlier, what does it mean to be a servant or a steward? It means all of your life is oriented unto the Savior or oriented unto the Master. Notice what Paul just did by his title. This would have been shocking for the Ephesians because they don't know. We have no reason to believe that they know he's in prison at this point. He's not mentioned it in the letter. This is the first time that it comes up. We've mentioned it in this series so that you can know where it is that he's writing. He's in Rome. He's in prison. We learn about that at the end of the book of Acts. And he's writing the letter from there. But, but notice here is the first time he's mentioned being a prisoner. But notice he's not a prisoner of Nero. He's not a prisoner in Rome. That's not what's happened to him. He's a prisoner with a purpose. I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus. I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now, don't just take this for a minute. What's he doing? Paul is taking the circumstances of his life and he's orienting those circumstances entirely to what he knows about the gospel and his master. And he is saying, if my master has redeemed me with unsearchable riches of his grace, and my master sustains me by the word of his power in the spirit, and my master has called and credentialed me as a disciple and now an apostle to preach the good news of the gospel... There is no part of anything that ever happens in my life, good or bad, that doesn't come from his hand, that is not for his purposes and his good and ultimate glory. There's nothing that happens. This imprisonment is not a setback. Mission's not on hold. I'm here for Christ Jesus. He sent me here. He's called me here. Paul is interpreting the most devastating experience of one's life under the lordship of Jesus Christ and is saying, this is no mistake. He's not going, this terrible Nero, I can't believe Rome. He's not, he's not fighting that. 
He's saying, no, I'm here, friends. I want you to know Church at Ephesus that love me, that would be worried about me, I want you to know I'm here. And it's not an accident of history. It's a sovereign action by Almighty God. Now, for some of us, we may be finding imprisonment a hard thing to get it, wrap our heads around. What you wouldn't find difficult would be a diagnosis. What you wouldn't find difficult would be a loss of a loved one. What you wouldn't find difficult is financial trouble or maybe bankruptcy. I'm bankrupt for Christ Jesus. I'm a cancer patient for Jesus Christ. I'm in the throes of grief by which to live out the gospel of Christ to a watching world for His praise and glory. See how different that is? Not a bad thing happened to me. Not a victim of circumstance. I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus. It's a very different thing, you see. That's what it would look like to live out the mystery of the gospel. Did you, did you feel a turning point right here? Because some of you in this room are like, I've got a diagnosis. And the only thing I can think of is getting better. And how to get out of it. I've not yet even conceived of it for redemptive purposes. I have a difficulty, a crisis, I have a lost job. And I've not yet even thought about it in terms of how the Lord might be sending me on mission. Both in my own heart and through me. To be a blessing to the world and to those around me and to make much of the Lord Jesus Christ for it. Nothing that has ever happened to you has been by happen chance if you're in Christ Jesus. Nothing. He's a prisoner for Christ Jesus. That's what it would mean to live the mystery, you see. Do you see what happened just then? Cancer became different. And you didn't see that coming. Job loss became different. And you did not see that coming. That's the gospel, you say. That's its mystery. That's its power. It's not just the content. It's the power of the work of the Spirit that lets you see things the way that they really are. The real truth that's at the foundation of the world. The mystery of Christ, you say. This is why at the end in verse 13, he can say, he can say to these Ephesians, who, let's just be, can we be Ephesians for a quick second? They're reading along in this lovely letter. They get to chapter 3. I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ. What? Hold up. Paul is a, Paul's in prison? Paul's in, like our, like he planted us. Like he's our founding minister. He was labored among us for three years. There's not an elder in our midst that he didn't help raise up. He's the first person I ever heard the gospel from. I owe the whole of my life to Paul, humanly speaking. He's in prison. That's, that's how the Ephesians are hearing this, you see. And then listen to his words. I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on your behalf, you Gentiles. 
On your behalf, I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm serving on your behalf. On our behalf? No, wait, we don't want you there, Paul. Like, we, don't, we don't want you. You don't have to do this for us, Paul. Like, like we'd rather you not be in, be in prison. What's Paul saying? Paul is saying he's not in prison because of some egregious crime that he committed and he justly deserves his imprisonment. That's a different category. He's in prison for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. I'm here because I'm fulfilling my calling on your behalf, Gentiles. Verse 13, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart for my suffering. Don't lose heart for my suffering. For my suffering, hear this, is your glory. Is your glory. Now, how is that possible? Well, just think, if we're orienting all things to our master, and all of our time and resources and energy and callings are oriented into our master, the apostle Paul is saying we have to steward our sufferings too. And and in stewarding our, our sufferings, I want you to know this. I'm here because I preach the gospel to Gentiles, but you've been saved through the work of the Spirit because I preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so my suffering is a picture of faithfulness of God's work through me, changing lives and planting churches. And you and your future glory is evidenced by the fact that I'm right now suffering for the faithfulness of preaching the gospel. That's your glory. Glory in the fact that the mission is being fulfilled. One of the most remarkable things is that can apply across the board, can't it? I mean, moms in here, I think, of, I think of you. You've got these, some of you have, you know, little ones, right? There's a lot of them at times. And, and it's easy to forget, isn't it, that um, changing diapers and, and, and making bottles and doing laundry, I, I, suffering, d- difficulty. And then there's the moments, isn't it, where you look at your children And you don't see a nose to be wiped or a mouth to be fed, but you see an eternal, never-dying person in whom your service to would by God's grace be unto their glory. Unto their glory. You see how different that is? What just happened was the mystery of the gospel. That's the mystery of the gospel. All of a sudden, you see it the way that it is. Teachers with your students, employers with your employees, with your friends and with your neighbors. These aren't tasks to be done, people to manage or get out of the way of. This is the work of whatever you are. You're a friend for Christ, you're a co worker for Christ. You're a teacher for Christ. You're a dad for Christ. That's what you are. And all of the suffering that will attend all the roles that he's called you to is unto their glory by God's grace. I was speaking in between the two services with one of our members in the early service. And I was actually telling him how much I would long for him to spend a little time with one of my boys 
just because I want my boys always around godly people and have as much influence as they possibly can in that, especially in those right teenage years where, oh, well, my voice is less and less important. Um, and so in those moments, right, you need help. And we were talking about the people in our lives who the Lord used, and I can name them. I can hear their voice, and I know they sacrificed for my glory, for Christ's glory. That's what you and I are called to, you see. In our different spheres and our different responsibilities, that's what you and I are called to. Different levels, different spheres. That's what we're called to. What are you for Christ? Who do you labor on the behalf of for Christ? See and believe the mystery of the gospel. It changes everything. It helps you see the way things really are. Father in heaven, I would pray that you would do that with us. We, we bum through this life very often thoughtlessly, not considering the riches of the gospel. And thus we just move through tasks and, and doings and we don't see eternity. Would you help us labor like Paul labored? No, we're not apostles. Most of us are not preachers. We, we're doing eternal work in homes and in workplaces and in neighborhoods and in communities and in nonprofit organizations. We're going around and we have never related to someone who is not a never dying eternal soul, who is not in need of God's grace and may need us to enter into sacrifice for them to see Jesus. Blow open our eyes to be able to see today how you're at work in these ways. Let the blindness go. Let the sight that comes in the gospel live and let the beauty and the power of this mystery be with us always until it's all that we see and do. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.